0: insidious All right, folks, welcome to the Kashmir-Palestine Conversation Series, uh, the latest episode of which will be addressing the question of or the issue of poetry and literature, Palestinian and Kashmiri. Very much looking forward to today's event. We have a great lineup of speakers. I won't be presenting them, uh, but I do want to say that my name is Tawfiq Haddad. I'm the Director of the Council for British Research in the Levant's Kenyan Institute. Uh, I'm broadcasting here from Jerusalem, but uh, folks online today, our panelists are coming from the United States, uh, from Ramallah and uh, different parts of the globe. So uh, very much looking forward to it. Today we have, uh, uh, our event is going to be moderated by Dr. Nadine El-Anani. She's a reader at law at Burbeck School of Law and the co-director of the Center for Research on Race and Law. She teaches and researches in the field of migration and refugee law, European Union law, protest and criminal justice. Uh, the rest of her bio can be seen on on uh, on our website. I'm sure you've seen it, but I want to before we hand things over to Nadine. We're going. To, I'm going to pass it over to my colleague uh, Emma Brandlund, who is also one of the founders of the Kashmir Palestine Conversation Series and the the Kashmir Palestine Scholars Network that is uh, putting this on together.
1: Thank you, Fik and thank you, everyone, for joining us this afternoon. I just wanted to quickly welcome you all to the fourth uh, Kashmir-Palestine conversation that we're having. We're delighted to have Nadine Dilanani as a chair for today's event and Dalia Taha and Atarzia as our speakers. So without further ado, I will hand over to Nadine to introduce our speakers. So thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you will enjoy this talk.
2: Thanks Emma and thanks Tufik, for uh, inviting me to facilitate this session and um, I'm really delighted to be um, sharing the space with all of you and especially our speakers uh, Dalia and Atha and all of you who are joining us today. Um, I thought I'd start with a few uh, words that I was inspired to put together in response to this really important conversation. Um, that uh, Emma and Tufika put together today on Kashmiri and Palestinian uh poetry and literature. After that, I will uh briefly introduce our speakers. Um please uh keep in mind that we will have a Q&A uh, session um at the end. Um so please do use the Q&A box, which you will find at the bottom of your screen uh, and, you know, write in your questions there during the course of the event. And I will uh, return to them when the time comes for uh, questions. So in May 2021, Israeli airstrikes on the open air prison that is Gaza destroyed two of the city's bookshops. Pictures circulated at the time of narrow rooms lined with bookshelves cast in a warm light loved places now gone. Gazans wrote of their grief for the loss of spaces they had returned to time and again in search of solace and inspiration in the words of others. I know these places, not these exact places, but places like them. Bookshops have been a place of refuge since my teenage years. Any spell of worry or loneliness can be lifted if I ducked into a bookshop. A slow walk among the shelves in the library quiet that book-filled spaces automatically induce would bring a sense of hopeful calm. Rows of books and reams of pages, all holding the possibility for adventure, company, rescue, and escape. I felt reassured knowing I was part of a world where people believed in finding each other and themselves through words. First, we grieve the lives of those whose homes crumble on their heads, And then we grieve the loss of places which in returning to again and again become extensions of ourselves. In the midst of a massacre and a trap of a trapped and terrified population, the Israeli military had found the time and target to destroy a people's culture, history, stories and poetry, its words. Today's event explores the theme of poetry and literature in occupied Kashmir and Palestine, where the practice of holding on to one's words and writing becomes by its very nature, because of its being daily threatened, an act of resistance. I have sometimes found myself feeling guilty that the time I give to writing and words um, is time taken away from political struggle, but I think today's events suggest otherwise. The radical status of poetry under conditions of occupation in places like Palestine and Kashmir reminds us that it is radical to love and make poetry in a capitalist world, to give time and energy to words in a system that values profit often generated by war above all else. For women, especially as Audre Lorde writes, poetry is not a luxury, but forms the quality of light within which we predicate our hopes and dreams towards survival and change, first made into language, then into idea, then into more tangible action. I often think of the American poet, Anne Sexton, who struggled with the societal expectation that she be a homemaker at the expense of her true self. She once spoke of how on first reading W. D. Snodgrass's poem, Heart's Needle, that she was moved to action, suddenly clear-sighted. Certain it was what she wanted, she went and fetched her youngest child from her mother-in-law's home, where she had been living, after Sexton was deemed too mentally unwell to raise her. Snodgrass's poem had woken up in her a desire and given her the self-confidence in her capacity to care for her daughter, Speaking about this event later in her life, Sexton said, what could be more powerful than a poem to move you to action? Action that is ready to be born within you is right there, and yet it is the poem that arrives and brings you forth and out you go. So it has always felt right and beautiful to me that the poem Sexton chose to read at the protest rallies against the Vietnam War was a love poem addressed to her eldest daughter. While other poets read works that evoked images of the horrors of war, Sexton read an ode to her daughter, both invoking love as a form of resistance and reminding us of the joy that lies at the heart of the reason for our struggle for peace. So on this note, I'll now introduce our two speakers whose words themselves are acts of resistance, um, of oppression and occupation in Kashmir and Palestine. And then I'll give the floor to each of them in turn. And please let me remind you to use the Q&A box, should any question or comment occur to you as you listen to them speak. So first we will hear from Arthur Zia, who is a political anthropologist, poet and short fiction writer. She's an assistant professor of anthropology and gender studies at the University of Northern Colorado. Atha is the author of Resisting Disappearances, Military Occupation and Women's Activism in Kashmir and co-editor of Resisting Occupation in Kashmir and A Desolation Called Peace. She has published a poetry collection titled The Frame. Atha's ethnographic poetry on Kashmir has won an award from the Society for Humanistic Anthropology she is the co-founder. She is the founder and editor of Kashmir Lit and is the co-founder of Critical Kashmir Studies Collective, an interdisciplinary network of scholars working on the Kashmir region. Arthur is also the founder editor of, e- of, the, of the e-zine based on Kashmir titled Kashmir Lit. After Arthur speaks, we'll hear from Dalia Taha, who is a Palestinian poet and playwright living in Ramallah. Her first play, *Kafaya*, made in China, was produced by the Flemish Royal Theatre and A.M. Katzen Foundation and premiered in Brussels. Her play *Alab Nareya* Nare- Fireworks was developed under the Royal Courts International Playwriting Residency and was produced there in 2015. Dahlia graduated from Brown University with an MFA in playwriting and has published two collections of poetry and a novel. She recently completed her third play, There Is No One Between You and me thank you i will now hand over to Arthur to kick us off
3: thank you so much nadine and thank you emma and tofik uh, for inviting me and dalia for joining me here for this conversation <clears throat> i'm really happy to be in this conversation and the team we've talked before so uh, you know, it's a very difficult moment to be talking about poetry uh, in when thinking about Kashmir in this present situation, because of all the times, it's very in, unprecedented, the level of attack that writing is under uh, in Kashmir in 2023, so to speak. Uh, it's always been the case that Kashmiris have not been able to write what their freedom of expression, let's say, has not been easy for them. It's always come with a cost. Uh, censorship has been part and parcel of their life. But now uh, there are several laws that are ensuring that no one can write. It's not as if it wasn't present before, but it's been institutionalized to such an extent that not even media can report. Reporters are easily tagged as terrorists and thrown into jail, even for a small time observation of a military ambush or something that they honestly want to report about. and that. Uh, the Indian government is not shown in the positive light that they want to be seen. So as of now, um, you know Nadine spoke about the uh, web scene, Kashmir Lit. Uh, I do wanna start by saying that if you were to go to the Kashmir Lit website, you'd see that there is a page that is dedicated to all the disappearing writing. So there is this thing uh, that has happened in the past four or five years that the writings of journalists and archives of newspapers are disappearing. And that's something that really, really is troubling because there is going to be a point in time when this era that passed, maybe the last decade, or I don't know how long it's going to last, that there's gonna be no archive off the ground. And that is what we are dealing with in this moment. So for Kashmir Lit, I was getting these requests. Uh, They have subsided a little bit now, but in the past three years, there were repeated requests from people to take off their writing, even as small as a poem. And then I would request them. I would say, can you just let it be there? I'll just make it anonymous. Or can you just let me have an archive, a backup? And they'd be like, no, we can't have it there. So I would have to completely delete it. And the reason is because for even a government job or anything that you are doing in kashmir for a small business you have to ask the government for a permission and the permission requires that you get a background check first so if you do not check that you haven't been a dissident at some point you haven't that if you check out that you know you are quote unquote you have never done anything against the sovereignty of india then only you get that clearance so that background clearance really requires that you have no record you have not written anything against India, so to speak. But that has also in the last three years included poems that people are taking down from Kashmir Lit. They're asking me, so this might be a Kashmir Lit specific example, but I have spoken to a couple of colleagues and friends who have had the same thing happen on their portals. So I call it the enforced disappearance of Kashmiri writing. So that's the moment I'm speaking of. Uh, That's the moment, that's the context of my talk. When I asked the questions that I'm asking in this paper that I'd written on poetry and dissent and placemaking in Kashmir and the and the need to write poetry and how much poetry Kashmiris are writing, you know, every if you kind of like throw a stone, it's going to hit a poet in Kashmir. But it's also a very very risky business in this moment because poetry, for us, as you said, that um, Nadine, you talked about Audre Lorde saying it's not a luxury. Uh, it is some sort of a business that doesn't give us any monetary benefit, but it does give a lot of emotional and a cathartic benefit for the society. So I do want to formally read some things, but then I'm going to kind of also open up into th- talking a little bit about uh, if we have time and maybe if we don't, then we move on to the conversation that Dalia and I and Nadine will have. <clears throat> So in the Indian occupied Kashmir writing as of now, journalistic, fiction, prose, poetry, even clerical memos, they are completely uh, banned, so to speak. If it presents, as I said, they're fatal, they're censured and they're surveilled. Every word of dissent is excoriated. Every cog in the occupying military machinery ensures silence of Kashmiri people. How does one write in a place where words are banned and bodies are killable? What happens to those writers in such a place? The evidence of their predicament is not hidden, not a surprise. Yet one question does loom large. Why do people continue to write even when it is fatal? How does one behold these death-defying writers? Not just their work, but also as human beings. Uh, Because after everything is said and done, I'm an anthropologist, so I like writing. I know what poetry does for us, but also, like, who is the poet? How does one... Um, in Kashmir, the act of reading poetry is seen as means of incorporating resistance in everyday of people, where overt resistance is unsafe and subject to surveillance by authorities. Thus, in a place where reading is resistance, how do we contextualize writing poetry, or to exist as a poetry, even sim- exist as a poet, even simply? These questions are not mere indulgences in academic theories, but they're urgent to understand the everyday life and meaning and modes of resistance in today's Kashmir. The Palestine that no one knows about. And I'm sorry to kind of like, you know, use Palestine as that kind of a comparison, but this is done with all kind, all affective law and uh, affective and affection. The Indian military repression is relentless and ever growing. The scourge of settler colonialism is rampaging the cultural, religious, political and economic identity of Kashmiris uh, and the stock that pivots around poetry, it p- pivots around poetry as a, category of an, uh, as a category of analysis, and the figure of a poet as a humanistic optic to look at how forms of resistance shape in public and private domains. The analysis uh, consists poets writing in Kashmiri and other vernacular languages, as well as English and Urdu. In an occupied zone where a war stands at all corners of home and streets, poetry ceases to be mere words. Poetry becomes ehtajaj, meaning protest, dissent, both in Urdu and Kashmiri. Poetry as ehtajaj is a situated act, a deeply political gesture, written, embodied, commemorative, and sometimes unsaid. And I think in this moment, unsaid is what I would underline, because sometimes poetry is just not written. And that becomes an act in itself, and that is the moment we are in. It is a form of placemaking, of course, in face of erasure and occupation. In context of Palestine, the loss of homes, land, memory. Adbert Sayyad repurposes the concept of placemaking, which encapsulates the creation of a site of a narrative history to counter the increasing depredations of the occupier's hegemony over knowledge and knowledge production and deepening settler colonial policies. Kashmiris are facing the onsla- onslaught, the same onslaught of Indian settler colonialism, that has erased their territorial sovereignty and from 2019 even more so. In face of the imminent dispossession of loss, uh, dispossession, loss of land, poetry becomes a place of reclamation and recovery. As a situated act uh, of descent of placemaking, poetry also emerges as a right to remembered presence. Um, It it becomes a way to history, to commemoration, however feeble the effort might seem in face of the hegemony of the occupying powers of the Indian nation. I do have a few examples to say here, and I might uh, resist from using the name of the poet that I'm gonna be speaking about, even though it is published, but it's in an academic journal. I don't know who reads that, but I would resist from using it here. Most often uh, we think of contemporary poetry in Kashmir, Uh, The figure of late Aga Shahid Ali, who was a Kashmiri American poet, he looms large. Readily accessible in English speaking audiences, Ali has become the de facto bard of Kashmir's tragedy. However, the realm of poetry in Kashmir has always brimmed with local voices who practice the art of writing in Kashmiri and other regional languages. In the year 1989, the Kashmiri Tahrik or the resistance movement for self-determination when it mobilized into an armed resistance, at that time, Uh, That was a dire time of course. Uh, Poetry books, irrespective of the topic, were dominantly published in comparison to fiction and other genres. And this is one of the eminent Kashmiri researchers and writers and um, a scholar of Kashmiri language, Professor Shafi Shok, who writes a paper in 1990 and he actually mentions this. Uh, The poets in Kashmir not only dare to write, but also persist in the art of surviving. Amidst war, because they don't just have to write, but then they have to survive on the, on the street, outside in their homes. Uh, amidst war, which makes poetry not only their only skill. So survival is then next best skill, I think. The ethos of poetic responsibility to provide witness and commemoration is part of the cultural demand placed on poets due to limited space and purposes in this um, talk right now. So I'll just kind of like mention a couple of examples of some poets uh, who have in the recent past being a part of like news in some way or the other. I just wanna give this example of a 55 year old poet who writes in Kashmiri and he himself has been incarcerated in his past life. He has been called a terrorist and uh, then his home, they found uh, the militants, the combatants in his home and they burned his home to ground. He wasn't there, but he had to flee and then the militants were in there. And he says that his poetry could be his his poetry could fill 50 easily uh, 15 to 55 books he that's the range he gives us and all of that is burned to ash nothing remains and uh, then some of the newspapers that covered his story they they showed him writing with a piece of charcoal like he's writing poetry on his burnt house and the pillars and that to me was so symbolic of the act that he was kind of like trying to do over and over, even in this burnt house, talking about these young boys who had been killed and then talking about his uh, entire repertoire, 30 years of his life's work that has gone to cinders. So that's the loss of his poetic archive is a deep wound. Uh, However, I found the, I mean, again, I have the luxury as an academic uh, and someone who's living away from Kashmir to say that I found it interesting. I know it's not interesting to him. It's completely devastating, but it's also theoretically interesting to see him write on the the burnt pillars of his house. Uh, He's writing these poetic verses and he's telling us he is in that moment. To me, it seemed like the the act of poetry, make, uh, the placemaking was so evident. I felt like the, not just placemaking, but poetry as an act, as a situated act of dissent, even when your, your entire repertoire, your entire written verse is completely gone. And I don't know how he's going to recuperate it. And I don't know how he's going to, how he is uh, withstanding that loss. So Madhosh's act of poetry, uh, is a way to history reclamation and recovery of, I, I said his name, but is also rec- recorded in our newspapers as well. Uh, re- recovery of a collective memory against memory side, where there is systematic erasure of identity history of one's people in order to write that of another people's over it, because that's the moment in Kashmir right now. What we are seeing is a rewriting of history. And that is happening at all levels. It's happening in the Indian literature. It's also happening within Kashmir, the way the vocabulary is being deployed and the words that are being allowed to be used. So that is going to be in circulation and we don't know how far that is going to uh, create sort of like the dearchivization or the memory side in Kashmir. So um, that's what has been constituted as Indian and nationalized Indian patterns in the last 72 years have been steadily imposed on everything that is Kashmiri, in the internationalistic narratives, the combatants who were who were killed, they were criminalized as terrorists, but that's not the, what, what the poet calls them. That's not what the people call them. So that's one example that I wanted to give of when in recent history, poetry really was kind of highlighted as an act for me. And the poet himself, the humanistic optic of the poet, not just his poetry, because his poetry is gone. Uh, in a way there does remain a lot that he has already written that's already out and that he has spoken about, but there is uh, a lot that he had written which was which was not published and that's completely gone, but he stood as an act and the other example I want to give is of this mother uh, who, who is not a poet, she is not even a writer, so to speak, she has not even formally gone to a school but her son was forcibly disappeared in 1990s and then when I was doing my research on the enforced disappearances in Kashmir I came across a lot of mothers a lot of people who were writing and a lot of fathers who had actually written stuff but they hadn't published and one of them actually got a short monograph published not about his son but about his struggle and also about the history of Kashmir so there was this thing uh, and the other thing is that the people who were in that struggle and who are in that struggle they did not come from the higher social standing so to speak they were mostly from the marginalized social classes so not all of them were formally schooled so they they did not write but they spoke and they they had a, a repertoire of songs at their disposal and poetry at their disposal and that's another subject where which they sang but this particular mother she used to sit in her courtyard and she used to versify all the time and then when she talked about her life she said that she was usually very sought or sought after during weddings and during some special occasions where she could go and sing because she also made impromptu verses and now she was versifying her tragedy and she was singing it and the first thing that I noticed was uh, the, as, as an academic, as someone who documents, I was like, this should be documented. And I was trying to look for someone who would document her verses and capture them. And then she said something very profound. She's like, the just want to read the translation um, if I can find it. But what she actually said was that the greatest poem that and the greatest writing that was readily that had come from Allah itself was her son and when he's not recorded or captured or you know he's been disappeared and he's not safe somewhere then what use is my writing or documenting my poetry and that never happened after that I I could not capture her verses no one else could and um, technically it was gone but I'm because it has been recorded in different places her the iconic of op, her optic her humanistic optic her viewpoint her vantage and even in the book that i've written and here I feel like that's some sort of archivization that happens off the poet and not just the poetry. So. So these are the two examples that I wanted to kind of like touch upon because we talk about English writers a lot in Kashmir. We usually don't look at the vernacular uh, writers who have continued to write poetry. And mostly these people, they live in places which are in danger zones, extreme danger zones. Kashmir is is as they call it the most beautiful prison, but at the same time, there are more dangerous zones and these poets often write in Kashmiri. they might not live in the better part of the city where there is slightly le- less uh, you know problems but they might live in places where these things are actually happening and for them to write and then to speak about it I feel that's the highest act of bravery that anyone can do and they stop being just poets and they become something else in that moment so the other thing I also wanted to say about Kashmir and uh poetry is that uh it's it's a long-standing tradition, but there is also um, this the idea of poetic responsibility. Like, what does poetry mean for Kashmiri? So we have had this long-standing discussion in uh, local Kashmiri poetry that you know Kashmir's history has been five hundred years of occupation, made starting right from Mughals, like when non-Kashmiris. And there is more history to it, like who Kashmiris, indigenous Kashmiris and non-Kashmiris were. But in the recent history, Kashmiris kind of like track back right from the time of Mughals in 1586, somewhere in the 16th century, when their occupation began from outside occupiers. And then there is this, this conversation like what kind of poetry has been produced during that time in this, in these uh, 500 years. And many people kind of point to the lacunae that we don't have poetry that, that kind of pushes against these occupiers. There's no overt poetry. Like there is a lot of poetry. We have a lot of mystic poets that have written from 15th, 16th century onwards, and who have, uh, and, and they have written Lots of books they have. I mean, they have companions that have been um, that have been uh, compiled Uh, not that they wrote books in their own time and they have also been sung. But at the same time, there is this discussion that these people have not really spoken against these occupiers and why didn't they speak about against these people in those times when these occupiers were coming in, there were the Afghans, there were the Mughals, there were the Sikhs, there were the Dogras, there were the English. Why haven't people actively written against if the poets, we had so many poets and it's a, lit, a rich literary heritage. So what happens in those times, and there are scholars like the um, uh, professor I earlier mentioned, Shafi Shah. he argues that, that what used to happen was that Kashmiris would kind of take a back seat in a way and they would, Descend into these mystic moorings, rather than going to the political underpinnings of their time. They would descend into their mystic life. They would descend into Islam and Quran and talk through all of those idioms, rather than speaking to the occupier directly. And then suddenly, you also see the preeminence of hereafter rather than the here in all of that poetry, and. So that's so that's something that I kind of wanted to bring into play because I feel like this current moment is also somewhat of that moment because now you can't really directly speak against the occupier. Even if you're writing, there was an article written by an, uh, a graduate student, someone who was getting his PhD. Uh, he had written an article 10 years back and he's incarcerated right now because of that article. And I'm sure like there are other things that they are uh, all- alleging on him, but at the same time, this article was used as a reuse. And it, they said that this is against the sovereignty of India. So that is the moment that we're speaking in. That's the moment that we're talking about. And in this moment, how are poets writing? And the other thing that I wanna talk about is not just poet poets writing, but also writers who are fiction writers or who are columnists and essays one of the biggest problems in this moment and I this is an academic community and I do want to talk about this is that as we are trying to gather together edited volumes of special issues even on creative writing people are dropping out they're not and there's so much repression that people are like we want to contribute but we cannot because this is this is going to be penalized after everything is said and done uh, we don't know how it's going to be taken so people are staying silent so how, what, how do we how do we see poetry in that moment and and not just poetry but other forms of writing and how do we comprehend this particular moment which i i really see as the enforced disappearance of kashmiri writing and that's how i have kind of memorialized this on kashmir lit website and uh, i have used some empty pages to represent the deleted uh, pieces and the pieces that I'm continuously on 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 almost like now monthly basis trying to take off from the site because people don't want them there, so in that moment I I feel like there is a distinct uh, process that we is happening and that needs to be captured as such, and I I know that poetry is important and I write poetry myself and that's my positionality as well. In this uh, huge uh, so, sort of fight that Kashmiris are fighting, one that is very overt and one that, that that's very covert, and how do we capture both of them? And how does a poetry, as a play, as place making, as a place of dissent, as a situated act, how does that come across in this moment? And my biggest worry is that people outside Kashmir might be able to write people who have already. Put themselves out there they might be able to write but what happens to the unsaid word that is not able to come out and that's where I'll stop thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much Atha that was fascinating and I, I certainly have um, a lot of thoughts and and um, points for discussion for you but I will hand over first to Dalia um, to speak now thank you.
4: Um. Yeah, thank you uh, Anthony for this uh, insightful uh, presentation. Um, uh, I will, uh, I'll be reading something that I wrote uh, about writing in, uh, in a place like Palestine. Okay. Every time I read a letter written by a Palestinian political prisoner, I am filled with this strange sense that it is part of an infinite conversation. A a conversation that was launched way before the letter was written. A conversation that started from the first human inscriptions on stones, their paintings on walls, and carried on in their philosophical debates, their wandering poems, their place seeking to understand the human in a world governed by larger forces. A conversation that commenced with the desire of humans to understand the world, their place in it, and their flattering, yet also beautiful attempts to make something of their bewilderment and pain, turning these feelings into larger utterances about life. A conversation that was carried on by those who insisted on telling the truth, correct our illusions, And reveal the unseen forces working underneath our reality. Perhaps what I recognize in their letters is that which distinguishes great work in the humanities the search for what deserves to be investigated, the desire to make the world a more humane place to live in. Sometimes letters written by prisoners find their way into our hands. This is no ordinary occurrence because before they appear on our screens, there are those who received them, copied them, edited them and made sure that meanings were conveyed correctly. They arrive after a dangerous journey. But what are we expected to do with them when they fall in our hands? coming from a place that was built to silence the writers of these letters. Perhaps the question that we ought to ask ourselves is this, how can we be serious and stern readers of these letters? Perhaps the answer to this question lies in the literal reading of these letters. Most of them are written in small fonts on paper that's scarce, requiring a great effort if we are to decipher the words. Understanding the real letter inside these letters, the humanist and ethical lesson that it offers, requires us to start from the lesson that the literal reading of the letter provides, which is to recognize and feel that deciphering them is not an easy task. It's true that these letters issue from profound suffering from the harshest places on earth, but it's unfair to reduce them to this. In reality, these letters contain fundamental truths, a truth that now seems essential and important in a world that is spelled to stub out our belief and responsibility, commitment, and possibility. To listen attentively with a great fidelity, this is the only way to make sure these letters arrive and find their purpose, which is to release us back into the world, a better readers of it. Like all the voices that defended the truth in a world that prefers to shy away from it, those who carry these letters like lanterns know that their larger battle is not against their jailer or killer, but against the forces that help keep a society dormant. They know that these forces work tirelessly to fabricate a fantastical story about our world, satisfying a horrid appetite to refashion pain as normalcy. <clears throat> These forces destroy the richness of our experience, insisting on making very small compartments for our ideas of the human identity, society desire. One of the most eviscerating truths about these forces is the fact that through them runs no path to changing or altering our world, or perhaps to the possibility of of overcoming old preconceptions. They lay waste our belief in the power of the people, shame the impulse to be angered by pain, criminalize the struggle for justice. We can see examples of this all over the world, not only in Palestine. The carriers of lanterns know that these forces and the stories they tell are more insidious and pernicious, more deeply rooted than those who would kill us. They lurk unnoticed in our daily lives in the form of innocent desires and ambitions, obsessions about personal success, non towards the pains of others, spite, spiteful competitiveness and greed. We can feel their deeply ingrained power in certain moments in the way that we flee across the street when we see a stranger approach. In our blind hatred towards those who are made to see as others. In our fear of those who tell us a different truth. In the belief that safety comes from installing surveillance cameras rather than working against poverty and inequality. In disbelieving the power or need for protest, strikes and political actions of all kinds. I'm starting my panel on writing with the writing of prisoners because prison is the most difficult place to write. And because the life of these letters can tell us a truth about the work that writing should do, which is to arrive from a place where a a writer is aware of the bars behind which he lives and wants to make others see the bars behind which they live. Writing seeks, seeks to break bars to free us in that simple exercise. It can remind us that jails and fortresses are not as as impregnable as they seem, that we can always find a way to communicate. I turn to prisoners' letters when I question the role of writing and ask what it should do in a world in which we are killed and brutalized every day. How to continue writing and speaking when you are being silenced? How to insist on telling the truth in a world where the powerful have the capacity to silence you? How to feel what truths are necessary? I'm talking about prisoners because in Palestine, imprisonment is one of the, many, of the main ways by which Israel silences and brutalizes us, especially the practice of administrative detention. Administrative detention is a procedure that allows the Israeli military to hold the prisoners indefinitely on the basis of secret information without charging them or allowing them to stand a trial. About 40% of Palestinian men in the occupied territories have been arrested since 1967. Women are also incarcerated, as are children and teen- teenagers. Many of my friends and colleagues, relatives, students, teachers have once been prisoners. A tool of of subordination and humiliation, the prison is at the center of our lives. The violence of administrative detention transforms the life of the prisoner into an unbearable experience. In a voice message smuggled out of a prison during the most recent hunger strike, which was undertaken by 59 Palestinians, prisoner and hunger striker Ghassan Zawahre describes their release from a prison as a release into another prison, where you are waiting for your next imprisonment. You are unable to commit fully to anything knowing that you will be arrested again. You are walking in the middle of night by any sound, any sound outside, thinking they are coming for you. As for your family, they have to endure the pain and horror of arrests, the sudden transformation of your house into a military barracks. You are unable to know your children or your sisters. Inside inside the prison, Palestinians endure brutal torture. I have spent days reading the details of this torture on the one on the website of the only organization who works to legally support prisoners. The organization itself is harassed and assaulted by Israeli forces. It has now been condemned as a terrorist organization and its offices being raided over and over again with laptops and documents confiscated. Despite these horrors, our prisoners remain unflinching. Throughout the years, they've led strikes and staged acts of resistance to to improve the conditions of their lives or to to protest the injustices of their incarceration. They have also produced books, poetry, children's literature, letters, academic research, and all kinds of literary and academic work that that enriches our imagination and expands the practice of our resistance. They are our heroes, our teachers. Held behind bars, denied all pleasures, including simplest things like a view of the sky or the sight of a rose, brutalized and tortured, Palestinian political prisoners keep fighting, using ingenious ways to write and to explore why writing matters. They know that humans suffer other kinds of imprisonments, and they know that writing has to make people aware of the cells they might be living in. In doing so, it can show us the possibility of many kinds of freedoms. In a world where we can only imagine personal salvation, they insist on collective salvation. They remind us that being a better dreamer means being a better human. That we can't imagine a better world unless everyone has a share in it. That we have no choice but to fight against injustice. Walid Dokkar writes, I worry all the time that I might stop feeling shocked and moved by the pain of other people, any people. I worry that I will no longer be moved by scenes of injustice, any injustice. The act of being moved is for me a daily endeavor by which I gauge my strength and resilience. Aisha Ode writes, I never dreamt of gold or fancy clothes. The sight of gold on the bosoms of women felt vulgar. We dreamt of a free country in which we can travel not as strangers, we wanted to create a beautiful and a free world. Salah Hamouri writes, for me, real life is in the train to freedom and its sacrifices and not in the station waiting for someone to manufacture our freedom. Palestinian political prisoners write to us. Their letters, which issue out of the darkest of places, are philosophical disquisitions on what it takes to live with others in this world committed to understanding it, believing that we can change it. In in this, in this smuggled voice message addressing Palestinians and detailing the life of Palestinian political prisoners and the reasons for why they were committed to a hunger strike, Zawahre ends the letter. He signs it, your sons and daughters. And something falls into place for me because the destiny of the son is to look with piercing, questioning eyes unto what has for others become normalcy. The destiny of the son is to face his father and to tell him about all the things the father cannot see anymore. To be a son is to carry the responsibility of having to reiterate again and again the injustices of the world he has inherited. This is what writing should do. It can't stop reiterating. It can't get tired. I would like to end uh, this presentation by reading uh, from um, Walid Dakka's uh, letter, Parallel Time. I wasn't planning to write today about time or a place or about parallel time or anything else, really, like philosophy or politics. All I wanted to write about were the sources of my anguish, about what I like and what I hate. But the writing that I had not planned to do resembles the life I had not planned to live. Let me admit, in fact, that I have never planned anything. I didn't plan to become a fighter, nor a member of a political party, nor to be involved in politics. This is not because all this has happened to me, happened by mistake, or because politics is a hateful thing, as some people like to think but because to me these were big and complicated topics. I'm not a fighter or a politician by choice. If I had had my way, I would simply have lived my life as a laborer, painting walls, or an attendant at a gas station, which is what I was doing when I was arrested. I could have married one of my relatives, just like everyone else. She could have given birth to seven or ten children. I could have bought a truck, or learn the intricacies of selling cars or exchanging currency. All of this was possible until I was confronted with the atrocities committed during the wars in Lebanon, like the massacres of Sabra and Shatila, which shook me to the core. I worry all the time that I might stop feeling shocked and moved by the pain of other people, any people. I worry that I will no longer be moved by scenes of injustice any injustice. The act of being moved is for me a daily endeavor by which I gauge my strength and resilience. The capacity to feel the pain of other people, the pain of other humanities is at the heart of civilization. The expression of the mental aspect of a man is his will. The essence of his physicality is work and the essence of his spirituality is feeling. And to feel the pain of fellow human beings the pain of other humanities is the essence of a human civilization. This essence is what is targeted during every day and hour and year of a prisoner's life. You are not targeted as a political being, not as a religious being and the consuming being who is being being denied the pleasures of a material life. What is targeted inside you is your social side, the human inside you. They do everything to make us hate them. What is targeted is your love and your humanity. I will admit now in my 20th year in a prison that I don't feel hated, nor do I feel beset by the indifference of prison life. I will admit that I become childishly happy for the simplest things. A word of praise or encouragement overjoys me. I will admit that my heart quickens at the sight of a rose on TV or a natural vista like the sea. sea. I will admit that despite everything, I am happy. There are no joys of life that I miss, except for two scenes of children and laborers. The sight of children drifting in from all parts of the village in the morning heading to school and the sight of laborers in the early hours of morning trickling in from all streets and corners during a cold, foggy winter morning, trudging towards the town center, all set to make the trip to work. I will admit now that it would not have been possible for me to feel these feelings, that it would not have been possible for all this love to remain with me if I had not had the love of my mother Farida and of my wife Sana'a and of my brother Husni if I had not had the support of my parents and felt encircled by loved ones and friends. I will admit now that I'm still a human, clutching my love as if it were an ember, that with this love in hand, I will remain resilient and that I will love you for love is my humble victory over my jailer. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much, Dahlia, um, for that really um, moving uh, uh, piece that you've written, but also um, reading us uh, those words um, just now, um, which I, I know uh, was was difficult for you um, to read, um, but I think speak so powerfully. I think um, to the themes of of today's event, I think that what really that what I found really touching was this um, idea that what keeps the prisoner uh, alive, what keeps the prisoner going is 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 an already known feeling of love. So a familiar um, feeling of having been loved um, and from having known joy and having known beauty and then the kind of holding of that inside oneself to both keep oneself going as a human under such um, torturous circumstances, but also to keep a person writing, to keep a person producing and communicating um, and trying to reach the hearts, the minds, the the, the selves um, of other people. Because I think it was a really powerful point that you made earlier on, as you were speaking about how prisoner's letters are written not to reach the oppressor, but actually to reach the society, to reach the people, um, to make them, to kind of shake them alive, to resist, because while they are in prison, the people outside are are, are free, are still free, and yet living under the normalization of oppression and violence, um, which can keep them prisoners inside themselves, and, and can keep them from resisting, and can keep them from living, and can keep them from being brave. And I thought, for example, of um, the uh, of an Egyptian political prisoner at the moment, Alaa Abdel Fattah, and how his book or his, his collection of writings, its title and its address, just as you were saying, um, Dalia, is you have not yet been defeated. And it is not addressed to the oppressor. It is not addressed to the Egyptian state. It is addressed to the Egyptian people, telling them that you are still free, you still have the time um and, and you can still resist. Um and and I think again by seeking to reach the humanity um of people and demonstrating one's own um the prisoner keeps himself or herself alive. Um, and I, I I yeah I was I was really moved by that. So thank you so much. Um, I, I want to ask um you both a um a couple of questions which I think or a question which I think moves um moves off nicely from where you've finished, Dalia, and, and from something you were saying earlier, Arthur. But before I do, I was going to say, I think at the moment we don't have questions in the Q&A box, which is fine. If people are happy to just sit and listen, I'm sure that Arthur and Dalia and I will will have a um, a, a, a very uh, rich discussion ourselves. But if you do have questions or even just thoughts or comments um, for our speakers, please do uh, put, them, put them in the Q&A and I'll come back to them. Arthur, when you were speaking, um, I was um, interested in the point you were making about how, uh, the the question that scholars uh, um, and and others ask of poets, um, of why at certain points um, poets haven't or don't or aren't presently um, writing against um, the conquerors or writing against the oppressors through the ages um, and I suppose in that there is this question of well we might uh, there might be the question which I think connects to Dalia's point about um, addressing the conqueror the ad- addressing the oppressor but actually I, I think probably that isn't necessary that necessarily implied by the question it could also be you know, another form of poetry. And of course the letter that um, the words that Dahlia read us were themselves poetic, uh, lyric words, um, not addressed to the oppressor, but nevertheless against the oppressor. So so I imagine that the question kind of includes writing of that kind. But I guess the two questions I I have to ask you both is, can one choose to uh, write politically through one's art is that a choice that can be can be made um if we think for instance about poetry or um art or exp- artistic expressions as um having uh or as being expressions of the unconscious and I think so much of what Dalia was saying um relates to to the freedom of the self being necessary in order to then work towards freedom of others and one's own and I think that is really um clear in the words that you ended on Dahlia where you talked about where um uh uh Walid uh Dhaka talked about the um uh the love um that he knew almost has allowed him to flourish and survive under these conditions of oppression were we not to have or to know love? Will we not to have that um that um that knowledge of that love? You know, would our psyches be free enough to, to for artistic expression, for example? So that's one that that's one question. And then I suppose the follow-on from that is if art is such an expression of the unconscious, then can we deploy art for political ends and for political means? Can we choose to you know um um to direct our voices um towards a p- particular Political end, um, and so I was going to ask you both, and I'm sure our audience will be curious about your own creative practices in, in this regard, because you both write so beautifully um, and lyrically, poetically in in your work, which certainly has this political content and this political intention and this political end. So, um, you know, is is that a question that occurs to you, or is it just a voice that comes, or is it a voice that you then direct um, against the oppressor? your artistic voices and I think that connects also to to, to what you were saying Dahlia so if you wouldn't both mind you know addressing that question and also if you have questions for each other which I'm sure you do please please do do ask them of each other in your in your contributions now um, Arthur shall we come to you and then and then I'll come to you Dalia? is that okay great thanks
3: thank you so much thank you Nadine thank you Dahlia that was really moving um, so Nadine, the questions you ask like (laughs) like so much in there, I don't know which which particular thread to connect to. So one of the things that really jumped at me as you were speaking was uh, thinking about artistic expression and sort of like its deployment. I also began thinking about how much demands we make of artistic voices, especially in a moment of repression. Uh, in a moment when people are not able to express what they need to get expressed. You know, long back, I used to work with this poet uh, who wrote in Urdu and was very well known critic of Urdu and poet as well. We used to edit a magazine together in Kashmir. It was called the Daily Jihad. Jihad meaning dimensions. And it used to publish Urdu poetry, Kashmiri poetry, some Kashmiri poetry, mostly translations and uh, and also a lot of critical pieces and pieces on literature, stories, and returned for quite a while in the late 90s, early 2000s. And, uh, you know, we would get overtly political pieces and he would turn them down because he did not want it to run into problems. I mean, he wouldn't turn them down out of like he didn't want to uh, publish them, but he knew that the poets, uh, but the writers would get into a problem. And uh, we were trying to, at that time, uh, put this magazine in garment offices and ask the government offices to buy them and stuff like that. And they could not buy something that had stuff like that. So then, uh, but there would be a lot of poetry, which was quote unquote resistance poetry. So I asked him this question one day. I said, uh, how is it that you're not publishing those pieces, but you let the poet? He's like, this is poetry. You can say anything. And uh, I mean, I know that it's a very... Uh, shallow or a trivial example of what poetry can do and you can say anything and so that was that time it was the 90s early 2000s that people were still writing poetry and they were being as political as possible in their artistic expression and they were saying things that they needed to say and it was still poetry and now we are in a moment where there is poetry already published like seven eight years on a website and people want to and unpublished this poetry. And I'm not saying all are doing that. I'm saying some are doing that. So that's the context. that's the that's the that, that's the journey, that's a chronology. And uh, this is also to say that it's not as if people are not writing poetry, as if they're not writing other forms of creative art. Uh, they are doing that. But then there is also this thing as well, which is present. And the other thing that came to my mind was passing of this uh, poet, very well-known, renowned Kashmiri poet, Rahman Rahi. He recently passed. And one of the discussions around his entire repertoire of writing was that he hasn't really spoken to the tragedy of Kashmir. Like one of the biggest grudges that people have, not just scholars or writers or poets have against him is that he hasn't really spoken to the Kashmiri tragedy and the politics of Kashmir. and But when you read his entire uh, uh, ur, you will see that he has spoken of uh, Kashmir's tragedy, politics, and he has actually mourned and he has talked about it, but it's almost like there is this unforgiving, unflagging criticism and critique against him that you haven't spoken to. And there are several other political reasons for that. But that to me really becomes very, it, it becomes a very important point. Like, what is it that we demand of poets? What? It, what is it that we demand of these voices in, in this moment? Like, what did he have to do? Did he have to plant a flag and then also plant his books around it and say that this is how I've spoken to it? Did he have to sing it? What did he have to do? And what is it that people are actually asking him? And there is. There are scholars who are saying the same thing. And then I read his work and I'm like, I think he has spoken nothing in the last 40 years except speak to the pathos and tragedy and the political uh, issues in Kashmir in different ways, in poetic forms. What What the other poet long back said that you can write anything in poetry and it can be construed as anything. So these people will not get in trouble. But here you have a poet who is speaking something that, is speaking to what people want him to speak about, which is Kashmir politics and tragedy and pathos and memory and loss. And he's doing all of that. And we are still not satisfied. We're like, no, he didn't really speak to it. He hasn't spoken about it. He's been very quiet for the last 40 years, but he hasn't been. So that to me is like, there is also this, there are people writing, but there is also this moment of frustration, especially Kashmir becomes a very special case. You know, in so that's one of the things that I, I really, uh, when we see Kashmir and Palestine side by side, and then we kind of think of this comparison, and we think so many similarities and overlaps, which I also see in my work as affective uh, relationship that we share with each other, uh, the 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 affective nature of love that is between Kashmiris and Palestinians, even though our uh, we don't have any physical connections between the struggles, but they are emotionally. Uh, same, the affective solidarity that we have for each other, especially from the Kashmiri side, I can say say for that. But one of the things that we also need to understand is the political situation in Kashmir. It is, I know that quote unquote, Israeli Israeli settler state is the largest democracy in the Middle East, so to speak. But then India is also touted as that. No one really looks at it as the neoliberal uh, state that it is and the kind of neo the colonization that it has done in kashmir in the last 72 years so it gets away with a lot of things in especially saying it's a democracy and then trapping people in this politics of democracy and once they are inside it they they have, they don't have anywhere as like the international community as of now in these 74 years kashmiri situation has gone so bad that uh, I mean, of course, it's also international re-internationalized in a way, but on the other hand, India has gotten away with so much. It's been narrativized in a way that we cannot go to international uh, forums without going through Indian institutions first, because it is seen as part and parcel of being in a country, so they have to redress uh, the everything that is happening wrong inside Kashmir. And it's a very ironic situation because India is doing everything wrong and you cannot go to its coast courts and its judiciaries. So what ha- what's happening inside Kashmir is there's this double layer of invisibilization that has happened. So people, the censor has a meaning. The media gag has a meaning for people because how do you survive? How do you write in a situation? Uh, and you, you're talking about prisoners' letters there used to be a time in the 90s, 2000, and even now where people are writing, uh, prisoners are writing, they're trying to get an education. But at the same time, I see this new insidious way of cracking down on writing on all forms of writing, even poetry, which can be construed in this post-structural or wherever, whichever way we are writing on can be construed as anything. But how do you... So that's where I kind of like think of myself. I feel like I... I don't write vague poetry, like, you know, I mean, vague poetry, uh, to use the word, you know, where you can kind of construe anything. I, If something seems vague, I bring the word Kashmir back in because I want it to be read as Kashmir. Sometimes I feel like, OK, I have the luxury uh, because I am situated in Western academia. I can write it the way I want it. And whatever repercussions it will have, it, ha- it, it has to have those i mean we choose those positionalities we choose those locations and it's very sad in some ways but but i think it's also a strength so that's where that's that's how i choose to deploy it there is there was a question that i got very recently about the work that i had published someone said hey you haven't really published overtly political uh, sorry overtly feminist poems about the gendered condition of women and you as a woman and all these travails that we face and i and i that's a conscious choice i have that kind of poetry but the poetry that i choose to put out and that i choose to publish is based uh, around kashmir and it kind of like takes the issue head on and and that's where i feel like okay if someone thinks this is not art this is mostly like you know putting stuff together and uh, just writing about kashmir in a poetic form so be it may the art be not that great but the message and the content be what i need it to be so so that is i i don't know if i'm answering the question you asked nadine but that that is it's a conscious choice to deploy the art or artistic sensibility like that and i feel it's much needed especially when i when i know and see i i see how many poems are not written and i don't mean to say not written as in they don't write them when they're not published when a poet doesn't get it, get its audience Someone posted on Facebook recently a uh, a Kashmiri poet. He said, "What is black death?" And again, then he was very vague about it. He's like, "When a po- when a, when a poet is not able to write about social issues," and I know what he meant. He meant what he's seeing. He's not able to write about, so that's black death for him. And uh, we we do these. Um, Poetic uh, events on Kashmir lit, where we bring Kashmiri poets and they they talk about their poetry, and most mostly what people are able to talk about is not the poetry they probably want to reach the audience. It's it's something else, and that that is the moment we are living in Kashmir right now, and. And uh, people back home are living right now and me seeing them here, uh, I'm living and reliving it in my writing. So I think that to me is becoming more important, not just the act of poetry making, which I think happens, but it's also what happens to the act, who gets to witness it. And if no one is witnessing it, and this is a big uh, issue, yesterday in Washington Post, there was an article about this young activist, uh, Rakib Nayak, who has this website HindutvaWatch.org, and he's kind of like uh, watching what the Hindus are doing and hate crimes and all of that. But in that article, there is a moment where he talks talks about something that is really uh, stuff of nightmares uh, which is what happens to this moment which is not being archived, not, not in poetry and people are actively wanting their writing to go away. And then you also have a concerted effort by the Indian occupation to de-archivize Kashmir. And we have reputed newspapers who don't have their archive before 2016. Nothing is left on the internet. So that's kind of like uh, how, how I'm thinking about what I was able to address in your question. I, and I hope I did some justice. I no, was... you,
2: you absolutely did. Thanks so much, Atha. I think the question that you, I mean, everything you said was was so interesting and relevant to, to what I was thinking, but I think, it, it, it I was really interested in what you said about the the kinds of demands we make of poets, you know, somebody can produce such a volume of work and and actually be resisting in the way that you and Dali have been talking about simply by writing, you know, really no matter the subject, but writing under the condition of oppression writing poetry is itself resistance, even if you're writing about, you know, watching the children go to school rather than something um, more concretely about violence that one might have witnessed. Uh, carried out by by the oppressor and so I, I I'm curious or I'm interested in the question of how the condition of oppression almost produces this um other layer of oppression from the oppressed to say to the artist you must perform in this particular way or your artistic voice your artistic expression and and I think that um even in, in the West, I think the expectation again is that we will somehow, and I think you were speaking to this a bit other, use our identities, um, right from our identities or how we are perceived or from our minority or marginalized positions, rather than whatever else artistic expression might come from us that we should somehow address our condition of oppression or our condition of minor minoritization or marginalization, which I experience as a form of oppression. You know, the demand, for example, you were saying is someone saying to you, why are you not writing um, from the perspective of, a, 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 of um, you know, a, a woman and a woman living under um, gender et etc. So I think that demand, you know, that is made of artists and writers, both in the minoritized position, um, like in a, in a white hegemonic space, but also in, in, in a condition of oppression, the artist must write about, you know, the most pressing, most tragic um rather than simply express oneself, which itself is, as you were saying, you know, is itself a, a radical um, a radical move, is I think a really interesting question. Those kinds of layers of oppression. Dali, I wanted to come to you to, if you see if you had any thoughts about what Atha was saying or the question that I asked at the start. Um, yeah, whether you want to come back on anything. Um, uh,
4: yeah, I can um, maybe also talk a little bit about how we live in a world where we also tend to think of poetry and politics as, you know, uh, uh, at opposite ends of each other and like, if a poet is politicized, then there is something wrong with his poetry and uh, w- I've been really thinking uh, about this um, for a long time because I'm also interested in like, w- what does poetry do in this in this world, how it can also be political, but not in our narrow definitions of political. I think there is a difference between being political and ideological in the sense that you can actually, being political is about actually um, uh, pushing against certain um, boundaries or like uh, um, ideas, but, um, but I think, yeah, I mean, Right now, I believe actually that el poetic el political is the same thing in the end so if when if we think about what is poetic يعني, what does the, what does poetry do? what does a poetic sentence do it and why does it move us? It moves us because you know it it creates this sudden proximity between two things that seem relatable to each other and I think literally this is what politics tend to do in uh, in the radical sense of politics Yeah. Like, you know like in poetry creates and, and when it does this it creates a new sense of coherence it's a, and and the moment it does that it can't be uh, overlooked or like pretend that it doesn't exist once uh, you know a poem states something Halas, you believe it's you, you see it you see this new coherence that didn't exist before and I think and, and, and any new political moment came with this, uh, came with a new sense of co- coherence and to try to create a new sense of relation, uh, relating to others, you didn't see yourself in relation um, uh, with or sharing the same conditions or the same. Uh, um, uh, fa- fa- I think they are the same in that way because they both push us to uh, um, uh, yeah. Um, anyway, but uh, in addition to that, I think yeah. For me, any poetry can be about anything, but it, it is political uh, because it's um, trying to. Um, um, uh, and uh, the other thing I wanted to say about the relationship between the political and the poetic is also we tend to think of like yeah uh, uh, politics as something that exists in a separate world as governments blah, blah, blah. but also like literally يعني, any political uh, regime or economy it also it doesn't only exist outside us it like governs the way we think we imagine we sympathize we feel uh, who we hate who we don't blah, blah, blah. for like poetry uh, suggests a new way of feeling um uh, in that sense, it is uh, political or uh, um, opens up a new horizons or ways of thinking.
2: Absolutely. I love that idea. And I think exactly that sense that you capture that, you know, what is it to be moved? It, it's 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 both emotionally or psychically but it's also moved physically into action and I think that's something I was trying to capture at the beginning that actually poetry can move us to action and I think that you're right that that they're closer that the politics and poetry are closer than we think that this divide that you know if something is a political poem it's not really poetry it's masquerading as as a poem but it's not really it's doing something else it's actually if you think of the, the physiological um and psychic response, you know, in our bodies and our minds that is produced by poetry. I think actually, you know, you speak about that beautifully. I think that's right. It captures really well how, you know, the political and the poetic are much closer um than we
4: would And <laughs> Just yeah. commenting on that, when we read, yeah yani when you read a beautiful poem, your instinctive reaction is to put uh, the book and move literally. <laughs> Absolutely. And when I think about it, it's literally what poetry does to us, and that's why it's political. It changes us to change uh, our position, like to move away from where we've been, uh, we've been standing or looking at things. It changes our language, our awareness, and in that, it is you know, uh,
2: so,
4: it's political uh, in a radical sense. Um,
3: so just to just to add to uh, what you both are saying, so I have something that I've been thinking for a long time, <clears throat> like how good a poet am I? Am I a poet at all? Should I claim the title? Should I, I mean, title as lesson, call myself one. <clears throat> and then it's also like in, in the recent years, I've been thinking a lot about like the de, decolonial element of our work, like how we are decolonizing our work in some ways, even though we're still writing in English and we're still speaking in English we're doing. So there's so much Eurocentric perspective that is still imposing on us and we live in uh the western hemisphere so so given given all that and also the decolonizing move I feel like one of the things that we can do and we need to do is to like who is, who, who says, who puts all these standards on us that if th- this is a poem that is overtly political, that takes things away. And that happens in academia a lot. The moment you begin speaking of examples and your theory goes kind of like away and it becomes grounded theory since so you're less of a theorist. So I think I've personally moved beyond that. And when I started in academia, I was already a little bit beyond that. I was intimidated for sure, but I already was beyond that because my job, my work was overtly political and it always will be overtly political. It will be more political than political. And I think everything is political, personal is political. And when your personal is politics itself, then it's doubly political. So that's who we are. And I feel like uh, I, I... I don't want to be judged on the standards of Shakespearean poetry or whoever else is there. I just want to write the way I want to write and I don't care if it's not uh, considered to be and I use the word I tell my kids don't use don't say I don't care because they say I don't mind but I am using the word I don't really care who thinks of it as poetry or good poetry bad poetry as long as I'm writing because I know that's a luxury for us in this moment and has always been and if you have an expression and sometimes I also think about like why did I have to travel to west to write and now I probably have an answer. Like, why do you have to travel so far to write about your homeland? Uh, and also like when you're in someone else's genocidal nightmare. Uh, and But but in this moment, I think all of these questions, they're kind of like the, sort of like swirling in my brain. And I'm thinking constantly about them. But I do know that we are doubly, if not troubly, <laughs> political. And that's what our voices are going to look like. And if it's not considered art by some people, I don't really uh, want them to read me.
2: <laughs> thank you, Arthur, so much for adding that. So we've got two questions um, from the audience that I'd like to go to now, and um, before we run out of time, since we're due to finish at half past three. So first, we've got a question from Shaira. Shaira says, thank you, Arthur and Dahlia, for such a beautiful and powerful discussion. Your reflections on the place and responsibility of archives, poetry, and letters was really moving. After this point around the absence of political poetry and descent into the sacred, makes me wonder about the role of non-secular rituals of writing or resistance, and what other imaginaries of the political are possible outside of the secular, thinking here about Sabah Mahmood's work. And if these practices not easily, and, and if these practices not easily read as political, or not easily read, sorry, as political, are openings to other forms of refusal, and Dahlia, if you know of any bodies of literature on Palestine that engage with mystical thought that might be interpreted as political or works that tend to that intersection. Um, so that question, if you if the speakers wish to read it, is appears in the chat. So you should be able to see that. We have one other question, which, if it's okay, I will read out now and then give you both a chance to respond as you wish. Is that okay if I read out the other question we have? Okay, so this question is from Suhail. Professor Zia, you mentioned affective, affective solidarity between Kashmiris and Palestinians, and you've discussed it in one of your works. As you also pointed out, that this solidarity is manifested more by Kashmiris. How do we ensure that this solidarity is expressed equally on both sides? Given a, there is a lack of awareness about the Kashmir conflict among the larger international community, and b, there is challenge of there is the challenge of highlighting the Kashmir issue in the Arab world, a space already dotted with several conflicts. So, Dalia, if um, I could go to you first, um, if that's okay, uh, if you want to answer. You can obviously come back to both questions because I think actually it'd be nice to hear both your thoughts, both of you on both questions, and we'll probably wrap up after that, I imagine, because you'll if you each speak for a, a few minutes on those. And obviously, if people have more questions, do ask them. But I'll, I'll hand over to to you, Dalia, and, and then Arthur. Um, I,
4: I'm still thinking. Uh, um, regarding. Um, And I don't have a definite answer for how to uh, uh, work or uh, improve uh, solidarity between uh, Kashmir and Palestine, but something like this uh, is a good example of, uh, uh, I think, When I read about the Kashmir, uh, the situation in Kashmir, I was so moved and I went like, I was like, wow, this is literally our life, but (laughs) in a different place, uh, different language, different uh, occupying power. But yeah, I was telling my friends, it's literally, you can write the same story, but you can change the names, use Palestinian names or uh, Kashmiri names, and it's exactly the same story. And I've been thinking about this. What, how, what to do? What, uh, what um, to do with? uh, um, 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 uh, uh, What can one do about this? To be honest, I still don't know a definite answer. But uh, I think in the beginning. uh, uh, n- n- a, g- a good starting point for me always is that when I learned about the situation in Kashmir, it wasn't, what I learned, what I was taught wasn't only what was happening there, the kind of uh, conditions they live under, the um, the atrocities they've experienced, but I also learned something else يعني, uh, 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 from reading. Uh, I learned... Uh, um, and I remember once I read uh, an essay written by a journalist who was uh, th- during the lockdown in uh, Kashmir. He went to the streets and he interviewed people, asking them what do they think about. You know, just uh, gathering, collecting their statements. And uh, one of uh, one of uh, the uh, yeah someone said. Uh, something uh, like this, and uh, everyone says that we are going to bring industrialization to Kashmir, we are going to open up, uh, we are going to uh, build factories, we are going to bring uh, economic development, but uh, who told you that I mean, Kashmiri, this is what we fight for, have you ever heard the Kashmiri Yani yeah, standing, protesting and uh, shouting, we want factories, we want uh, economic growth. What we want is a freedom. And then he goes on saying, in, no, we know what Indian uh, cities, yeah, me, what the, uh, economic development and factories uh, and industry brought to Indian cities. Yeah, they brought pollution, they brought uh, um, Poverty, all these things. So we prefer to actually live in small homes. Uh, uh, with, uh, we, we just need our basic needs to be fulfilled. And for me, this is, yeah, this, is not, this is the kind of language and imagination that is not here in this world, where we are encouraged to dream in certain ways or improve our lives in certain ways or expect or have certain uh, understanding of what improvement of life is, and and what I learn, when, yani when I read about uh, what happens in Kashmir, I also learn uh, other ways of beings that could be more enriching to us as humans. Uh, For uh, uh, any kind of solidarity, mean, means to me also what can. Uh, people learn from each other
3: mm-hmm.
4: uh, about what it takes to be uh, alive, what it takes to live with others. What, how do
2: we dream? How do we imagine? Um... Just to add, Dalia, Dalia that's Dalia. wonderful. Atha, yeah, I was literally just gonna hand to you to come back on that. And Dalia, if you have a look at the question in the chat from Shira, if you have any thoughts, either type them in the chat or um, I'll come back to you in a moment. But yeah, Atha, do you want to come? Back on Suhail's question, and if you have any thoughts about what Dalia was saying, that would be great. So I want to
3: start with what Dalia was saying, and then that also feeds into Suhail's question. And then maybe move on to Shaira's question. So Dalia was saying like what, what she was talking about, like her introduction to a Kashmiri situation and how there are so many resonances between the two. And then there are lots of differences between the two and what we can learn from each other. And I did try to make sense of it for myself long back. We did the special issue. Uh, it was uh, the Goldie Asuri has, uh, uh, is the editor and I'm also one of the co-editors. We edited this for identities uh, about Kashmir and Palestine and had a scholars from both sides speak to each other or sometime. And then we also realized that they can't really speak to each other in that manner, but they will speak about their own places. because this is just a beginning of conversation which is also very much reflected in the conversation we are having so these are two palestine and kashmir are the two oldest um, issues on the agenda of united nations and i'm again i'm bringing in united nations with all the decolonial decolonization kind of and also the critique against it but just to say just to flag that they are kind of like these sister issues that emerged in 1948 and they are they were tabled one of the first two uh, issues regarding people's right to sub-determination in 1948 so in that sense they're kind of like connected and kashmiris have been following this for a long time i i mean i know we are short of time but uh, when I started my doctorate, I we had a I had a senior cohort uh, who was a Palestinian, and when I heard that he was a Palestinian, I thought, you know, when I when I meet him for this meet and greet, I was kind of like, you know, I was ready to m- meet him, and I kind of knew him because he was a Palestinian, because that's how Kashmiris think of Palestinians, their brethren. Uh, in so it's kind ka- of. Ka- but he didn't know much about Kashmir. I I, I knew all about Palestine and I'd read some of the literature and I was already working in one of my research projects on Palestine. And that that to me was a little bit of a surprise, but things have changed a lot since. So it's not as if things are remaining the same. And I do wanna say from uh, in the last 10 years, Kashmir has been re-internationalized. I'm not saying internationalized in the manner because it's already an international issue and India takes Uh, that away from kashmir saying that it's not an international issue it's a domestic it's a territorial issue between the two nation states but it's an international issue that has been there but since last one decade it's been re-internationalized from 2019 more so so there is more conversation so speaking to suhail's question i feel like uh there is a lot of awareness that needs to happen and i think these conversations events like these uh, not just academics, activists, but also people to people, Facebook, social media, they have, it has done a lot. I remember there was this one incident in 2016, you know, stone throwing is a huge uh, in in Palestine. It's also one of the iconic ways of protest in Kashmir so that they kind of share that in that manner. Uh, there was, then there used to be a lot of tear gas that, peop- that the Indian government would uh, throw at the protests. And there was this one report about how Palestinian activists are sharing resources with Kashmiri activists and how to deal with it. So that was just like a brief uh, moment in people trying to talk to each other, not just activists and not just academics and writers and having that kind of an exchange, but other forms of exchange that really matters on the street that keeps these resistances alive. So that's uh, that's something, that, that kind of exchange has happened. Uh, there was also a blog where a palestinian act, uh, young palestinian writers they were translating kashmiri reports and kashmiri poetry and i think it's still ongoing it's still alive, alive somewhere uh, so i feel like that exchange has happened it just needs to build but i also know the forces on the indian occupied side israel is they india and israeli are uh, settler state they share so much information they share they're they doing business together, they're doing tourism, they're doing surveillance, they're doing cyber surveillance. In, uh, I mean, India doesn't need to learn from Israeli settler state, but it is learning some different forms. And they are exchanging information about, you know, how to securitize their states. they are also surveillance uh, methods of punishment that are happening on Kashmiris and then arms and armaments that are coming from. Uh, that part of the world into Kashmir. So there's a lot of that kind of exchange happening. And I know there's going to be more and more oppression, uh, but I also know that there is going to be more and more awareness because we do have, even if we have compromised and capitalistic tools in hand, I feel like some chink in the armor of this tyrant has happened and people are talking to each other. And that's my only hope. Um, And uh, Sohail, you talk about, highlighting issues in the Arab world and dotted with several conflicts, I don't think we should have, we should put the trope of uh, Arab world being in conflicts. All the world is in conflicts, And these are also conflicts uh, that are not just conflicts, they're outright wars. I I don't see them as just conflicts. Uh, It's not as if the societies are inherently conflictual in some ways. These are wars that have been imposed. And these are also a part of the colonization and neo-colonialism. So I feel like highlighting issue in Arab world, it is happening. I feel like India at this moment doesn't need help in the way it's unraveling. uh, But we have to do our part. And that part is writing and having conversations uh, in creating awareness. And I know in this moment, as Kashmiris have been silenced, they're not silent, but they have been silenced. People outside have to make sure that they are talking to the rest of the world in the best most overt political way that they can so that's that's my only hope there and then speaking to Shaira's question I really want to take this question and think about it more because it's such a it's uh, not that Suhail's question was Suhail's question was more direct but this is more like it gives more fodder for thought and uh it's it's a lot to kind of deal with in the less time we have but but talking about non-formal or maybe more non-secular rituals of writing and resistance, I think that is the another decolonizing or decolonial move and that's how we are looking towards a decolonial futures where we have to archive them, where we have to like in Sabah Mahmood's work, we see how she projects uh, feminism, the feminist praxis. And that's what we have to do in the kind of writing that is being produced in the kind of expressions. And that's why I say, I think I already uh, earlier mentioned, that i don't really feel the need like i don't i, I don't want to think of like uh, milestones that people think about like when they produce good writing the western instituted awards and uh, you know accolades i don't think that's what's happening here anymore i think there are a lot of scholars who are really wedded to understanding their societies in a very decolonial manner and trying to capture those non uh, non secular rituals and forms of uh, writing or expression that are happening and kind of like formalize them, institutionalize them and show them to the rest of the world because that's what we are about. So I, I know this is like a very fast answer. I could have answered both the question questions better, but we
2: don't have time. No, they were perfect answers. I'm I'm so sorry we have reached the end of our time, but knowing Shira, I'm sure that she will be Hello, Shaira. She'll be so happy to continue the discussion with Arthur and with Dahlia. So, you know, um, please, please do make those connections. That's what is, you know, that's what these this event, um, and this series of events is about. You know, keeping the dialogue and the conversation going, not not just ending after um, this event. Um, so, I yeah, I will end us there, and I'm I'm going to hand over or hand back to uh, Emma and to um to kind of finish uh, off. Um, thank you both so much for your wonderful contributions and for what, the wonderful discussion and also to um, those who came and asked such um, such brilliant questions um, that kept our conversation very rich and alive. Thank you.
0: Indeed. Thank you, Nadine, and thank you to our panelists today, Ather Zia and Dalia Taha for this incredibly moving and uh, very insightful and brilliant uh, talk. I'm, I feel very uh, proud to have been a part of organizing it, so I'd like to thank you sincerely, as well as all those who are in attendance and uh, put forward their questions. You've been listening to the Kashmir Palestine Conversation series, a series aimed to create spaces for dialogue, network, and knowledge exchange between scholars of both Kashmir and Palestine. I'll hand over now to my colleague, Dr. Emma Brandland, one of the other founders of this uh, Kashmir Palestine Conversation series, to be able to speak about forthcoming events, and then do the final sign-off. So thank you, Emma.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to uh, reiterate what Tufik said. Thank you so much, Nadine. After Ndala, it was a really interesting, really engaging conversation. I think there's a lot of food for thought to take with us from this. Uh, I know we're over time, so uh, I just wanted to say that our next event is taking place on uh, the 14th of February. Uh, we're going to go back to our previous time, so 3 p.m. UK, 5 p.m. Jerusalem, 8.30 Shinegar time. Uh, we have Yale Berda, who, who will speak about her book um, on uh, incarcerations. Um, and we also have another event on the 15th of March. So those two events will be published on our website, uh, KashmirPalestineScholars.org. Uh, in a short while, uh, so just keep uh, keep an eye on that space. But thank you all for coming. Uh, it, will, uh, it was really great uh, to have you all here, and hope looking forward to seeing you at our next event. Thank you, everyone.
0: Thank you, Emma. Can I just do a small correction? That the, the oh, event sorry. on the February fourteenth is going to be on colonial bureaucracies and contemporary citizenship between uh, Israel and India. Today, so she's just come out with a book from Cambridge on the subject, and she specifically takes up these case studies, and so she will present on that. So, uh, as Emma said, check out the website where, where we'll be, where you'll find information about uh, how to sign up for that. So, thank you, and have a great evening.
1: Thank you, Bye-bye. Bless. Thank you.